How much effort would you expend to watch or to view a sneak preview of the next movie in your favorite series? You know, it's pretty popular for movie studios to release a... Uh, to have a pre-release and to have a sneak preview. You have to jump through some hoops to get there. You have to get tickets. You have to get passes. Sometimes you have to spend uh, all night in line to get those things. But for, for people that are true fans, true followers, it's worth it to get that first glimpse before anyone else does of, of something that you are really looking forward to. Well, in today's text in Luke chapter 9, uh, verses 28 through 45, uh, Jesus is going to give his closest disciples a sneak preview, a sneak peek of what his true nature, the, the glorious splendor of all of his majesty looks like. So we're going to read through this text and then um, I'll, I'll have a couple observations to, to make uh, uh, afterwards. As this text begins, it's going to begin with a temporal marker, uh, a time marker, after eight days. What Jesus had just spoken about was uh, his coming death. And it was an announcement about or a prediction about his death. And then we pick up the text in Luke chapter 9, verse 28. About eight days later, Jesus took Peter, John, and James up on a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was transformed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly, two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared and began talking with Jesus. They were glorious to see. And they were speaking about his exodus from this world, which was about to be fulfilled in Jerusalem. Peter and the others had fallen asleep, but when they woke up, they saw Jesus' glory and two men standing with him. As Moses and Elijah were starting to leave, Peter, not even knowing what he was saying, blurted out, Master, it's wonderful for us, it's wonderful for us to be here. Let's make three shelters as memorials, one for you, one for Moses, and, and one for Elijah. But even as he was saying this, a cloud overshadowed them, and terror gripped them as the cloud covered them. And then a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. When the voice finished, Jesus was there all alone. They didn't tell anyone at that time what they had seen. The next day, after they had come down from the mountain, a large crowd met Jesus. A man in the crowd cried out to him, Teacher, I, I beg you to look at my son, my only child. An evil spirit keeps seizing him, making him scream. It throws him into convulsion so that he foams at the mouth. It batters him and hardly ever leaves him alone. I begged your disciples to cast out the spirit, but they couldn't do it. Jesus said, you faithless and corrupt people, how long must I be with you and put up with you? And then he said to the man, bring your son here. As the boy came forward, the demon knocked him to the ground and threw him into a violent convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the evil spirit and healed the boy. And then he gave him back to his father. All gripped the people as they saw this majestic display of God's power. When everyone was marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said, while everyone was marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, listen to me and remember what I say. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of enemies. But they didn't know what he meant. Its significance was hidden from them so that they couldn't understand it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. The word of the Lord. 
the beginning of the text, the first thing we notice is Jesus is heading up a mountain to pray. We've already noticed in a previous lesson that Jesus spent all night praying before he chose his apostles, his 12 apostles. Luke, more than Matthew or Mark or even John, emphasizes Jesus's practice of praying regularly and praying often. It goes without saying that if Jesus, the very son of God, felt the need to stay connected to God the Father through prayer, how much more do we have this need uh, to stay connected to God and to maintain this healthy practice of prayer? In Scripture, mountains were places where people would go to encounter God. Uh, Two examples come to mind coming out of this text. Uh, Moses was on top of a mountain when he received the Ten Commandments directly from, from God. And then Elijah, when he was running for his life, he was discouraged and at the, uh, at, at, at the point of despair, uh, he flew to the mountain of God uh, when he was running from the prophets of Baal, and God strengthened him there. As Jesus is praying, his out, this is almost like it would be a scene that you would see in a science fiction movie, but the outer form of his body seems to melt away and his true inner glory shines. His face is transformed. Uh, Matthew and Mark use the word metamorphosis to describe this transfiguration, this change. Jesus' clothes become dazzling white as if it was a nonstop ray of lightning, that bright of a light shining through. And Moses and Elijah are also somehow transformed. They have some sort of glorious appearance. The disciples are asleep. And so whatever is happening right now is is not for them. Jesus is talking with Moses and Elijah. What are they talking about? Jesus' exodus from Jerusalem and from this world. Now, older translations and many even other modern translations will translate this word as departure. But the word literally in Greek, and only Luke, you, only Luke uses it, is the literal word exodus. I, I mean, imagine this. Moses is talking to Jesus about exodus. <laughs> That's even better than talking to Charlton Heston about what the exodus was, right? Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. After Jesus' resurrection, he's talking to the disciples, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And it says that the text says that he revealed to them all the things that the law and the prophets said about him. Finally, the disciples kind of groggily wake up. You know, sometimes they act more like the three stooges than the three musketeers. And they wake up and they see that Moses and Elijah are departing. They feel like they need to stay. And so Peter blurts out. Peter's the kind of guy that'll say something, even if it's something wrong, he'll say it. And suggests building three shelters or tents or structures for them to live in a permanent basis. (laughs) Moses, Elijah and Jesus And we know it's the wrong thing to say by the way God responds by sending the cloud, covering uh, all of them, uh, them being stricken with 
uh, terror and fear in their heart and then hearing this voice from the cloud. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. It's very similar to the words that Jesus heard that were spoken to him at his baptism. You are my beloved son. In you I am well pleased. But now these words are for the disciples. One day later, they're off of the mountain, and as you would, they're in the valley. And the disciples realized that their vision of Jesus and his glorified state didn't automatically give them powers to do supernatural miracles. On the mountaintop, God affirmed his son, the chosen one. In the valley, a troubled father is asking help for his only son. We don't know whether the disciples' ineffectiveness is because of their overconfidence, because of what they've just seen, or whether it's just a lack of trust in God. But regardless, the result is the same. The demon has the upper hand. By Jesus' frustrated reaction, we, we get the idea that maybe he expected the disciples to be able to handle this. But they couldn't. And so Jesus casts the demon from the boy. This story of transfiguration is, is puzzling to us. Some people think uh, and suggest that it's Jesus come back from the dead, kind of returning back from the future. Th this seems to be happening in real time for a very specific reason, given the context of when this takes place. Before we talk what it, what it means to the disciples and to us, I think it's important to emphasize first and foremost that this moment, this transfiguration moment, was first and foremost for Jesus. Only Luke gives us his insight that there was a conversation. This happened while the disciples were asleep. This conversation was not for their benefit. Moses and Elijah are talking to Jesus about Jesus's Exodus. Moses's exodus was when he led the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt to, through the wilderness to the promised land. And remember that the exodus was granted after the death of the Egyptian firstborn. And Israel was saved by the blood of the lambs spread over their doorsteps, their door lintels. So as we think about Jesus' exodus from Jerusalem and also from this earth, we understand that his exodus also involves the death of God's firstborn. And it involves the blood of the Lamb of God. Jesus is going to lead his people out of the slavery and oppression of this world with all of its demons and guide all of his people to their new home in this new kingdom, this new presence with God. Uh, perhaps this conversation took place so Moses and Elijah could confirm and affirm to Jesus that he was on the right track. 
that all of the scriptures pointed to him and he was doing the right thing. Because as I mentioned, immediately before this text and at the conclusion of this text, Jesus is talking about his death. The disciples aren't going to accept that word. Many people didn't receive it or choose to believe it. And Jesus will even later struggle in prayer to accept what God had called him to do. So I think this conversation was important to Jesus. But this transfiguration is also important for the disciples and for us. In the first place, it affirms once again who Jesus really is. The eternal Son of God. God's chosen, beloved Son. The glorious experience on the mountain, coupled with the embarrassing failure at the bottom of the mountain, serves to highlight the reality of our struggle. We're well aware of this truth that we as followers of Jesus live in two worlds. We have one foot firmly planted in the world of God's glory, and we have one foot firmly planted in the world where demons continue to wreak havoc with desperation, pain, sickness, and death. One author states, the glory of God's presence and the pain of a broken world cannot be separated. We feel this tension. We're uncomfortable with this tension. We want to be 100% in God's glory. We're strangers in a foreign land. We're aliens in a strange land. But Paul is going to tell us in 2 Corinthians that all of us who have been to the mountain and all of us who have seen the glory of God now reveal that glory of God in our very lives. When Moses went on the mountain and was in God's presence, when he came down, he put a veil over his face because that glory was going to fade away. And he was afraid that the people would think that he no longer had God's presence with him. But Paul says in 2 Corinthians verses 16 and following, But whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. For the Lord is the Spirit, and whenever the, Lord, the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like him as we are changed, transformed into his glorious image. And so, we all now, as followers of God, reflect the glory of God, not just in our faces and our smiles, but in our very lives, in our very behavior. Daryl Bach wrote the New International uh, Application Commentary on Luke. He wrote it in 1996. And I want to read his understanding of what this means for us. I think it's pretty powerful and and, and significant for what we're talking about. Bach says, 
It means for us to reflect God's glory every day in our lives. It means that spouses treat each other with mutual respect and that issues of power dissolve in the face of mutual love and concern. It means a word given is an act performed. It means that a powerful and beautiful gift like sexuality is not cheapened by being paraded to all bidders, but is kept like a precious treasure to use as God intended in a context of love and commitment. It means that life and the preservation of life are to be honored. It means at a social level that injustice aimed at those who do not have power and risk being dehumanized is exposed and addressed. It means that theology and a moral perspective from the scripture are paramount no matter what ideology or political party might be challenged in the process. It means that ethical decisions, including those related to medicine, are thought through and the expedient choice is not always there. It means that our behavior reflects the very nature and heart of God. The Greek word for glory is doxa or doxa, and we see that in the word doxology, a word of uh, of reflecting the glory of God. The the Hebrew word for glory is kabod or kabod, and you might not recognize that word. It appears hundreds of times in the Old Testament, but it's always translated. But there is one time in the Old Testament used as a name that you might recognize it. In, in 1 Samuel chapter 4, and then the name is repeated. It was a young man who was named Ichabod. When the glory of the Lord had departed Israel, this young man's mother named him Ichabod, the I meaning without or no glory. Ichabod is one with no glory. So as you live your life this week, in school, at work, wherever you are, and people observe your life, don't be an Ichabod. Let people see a glimpse of the glory of God reflected in you. And may God be praised by that reflection of God's nature and goodness that that people see reflected in you.